Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. We continue our series on the second half of American history with podcast number 16. In the 15th podcast, we reviewed the beginning of what became known as the Progressive Era, an era that is still largely in place, judging by nothing more than the progressives currently in the Democratic Party, and even a few in the Republican Party, who are still pushing for the ideals that the Progressive Era started back in the late 1800s and early 1900s. We looked and distinguished why technically the progressive era was not considered a movement. A movement generally has a defined period of time with a specific leadership in place. The progressive era had none of that because it was too widespread as it needed to be. There was no unifying organization or leadership. Sure, there were different people that made a name for themselves in the progressive era, but it would be in the various uh, areas of modern day, at that time, modern day American life, whether it be in child labor, whether it be in education reform, industrial reform, child labor, woman's labor. We also looked at the muckrakers as it defined by the term uh, pushed by Teddy Roosevelt. We also then moved through looking at why in terms of child labor, what the issue was is not so much that corporate America was ignoring the child labor issues, but rather the moms and dads that needed their growing teenagers and their growing appetites to literally work to keep food on the table. We discussed their standardization of public education, the impact of the beginning of the prohibition movement, We also discussed, we finally got to the 19th Amendment in 1920, where women could vote four years later with the Indian Citizenship Act. And we ended our discussion with the rise of the 26th president of the United States, Theodore Roosevelt. So in this 16th podcast, we're going to end our discussion on the progressive era with looking at the impact that Teddy Roosevelt had on American history that arguably is still clearly reflected and felt today. The first and most important would be in corporate regulation, setting up the food and drug regulation via what became known is still known today as the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. This is the organization that is called out when it's thought that perhaps a new particular type of drug might be having negative side effects that wasn't uh, discovered when the drug was being studied and tested, those would be reported to the FDA. The FDA will move in with different food issues being reported with contaminated food. If we notice that we were waiting for a new drug to come out, especially with the in the wake of the coronavirus, we were scrambling around trying to figure out if a vaccine or any type of medication could perhaps cure or at least prevent this 
virus from affecting so many millions of people, that's when the FDA was coming under close scrutiny once again, wondering if there was a way that way they could push or speed up the traditional approval process in order for a drug to enter the American market. From there, we also see then in the with the with corporate regulation, the establishment of the eight hour workday. Teddy Roosevelt also, unlike his predecessors, refused to step aside when there would be labor disputes between corporate America and the union workers. He would have no problem intervening himself in and in, in trying to mediate the needs of corporate America versus the needs of the working population. So he was a very much an activist president on the national scene. On the international scene, Teddy Roosevelt also in some ways breaks glass ceilings about with the ways we'll see later on that he is going to intervene in foreign affairs, not only in terms of international relations, but literally jumping into the middle of two warring countries, specifically Russia and Japan. So he's very much an activist president. He wants to see that America is back on the world stage or arguably on the world stage in a new way for the first time. He's going to send out what becomes known as the Great White Fleet, which is basically a parade of American naval ships that he sends around the world that some countries interpreted as nothing more than America flexing its muscle. So this is part of the reason why Teddy Roosevelt is highly ranked by presidential historians and political scientists for the gains that he had made. And even though, again, he's going to have to step down when he doesn't run for the presidency in 1909, he will then pass his office on to his uh, vice president, of course, will be elected, that being uh, Taft, as we'll talk about in a moment. But Teddy Roosevelt is such, in terms of the legacy he leaves, that we will be talking about his administration a few times and later in this podcast and then in future podcasts. So. The 27th president, uh, that being William H. Taft from Ohio, succeeded Teddy Roosevelt. And as we know, this is going to be a one-term president. William Taft was arguably, or perhaps one of the worst, if not worst, men to actually occupy the Oval Office for no necessarily reasons to himself. He was simply a man that had no desire, no interest in becoming president of the United States. Yet he felt as though that he, for the good of the Republican Party, and not to disappoint his boss, Teddy Roosevelt, thought he had to throw his hat in the ring. Teddy Ta William Taft, as we'll find out, is truly an unhappy man for the entire duration of his four years in office. He, to date, is still the heaviest president to occupy the Oval Office, weighing in at well north of 300 pounds. It is true that he had issues with White House bathtubs. He had some issues with White House door frames. Yes, he was a very unhealthy man throughout the presidency, and it only got worse while he was president. And if it seems like I'm trying to uh, maybe make a link here, a connection that isn't there, consider this. After Teddy Roosevelt 
or excuse me, uh, Taft leaves the White House in 1913, he will eventually years later be appointed not only to the United States Supreme Court, but to be Chief Justice of the Supreme Court when he's appointed and then confirmed by the Senate under President Warren, Warren Harding. It is as Chief Justice that Taft will lose a significant amount of weight smile almost uncontrollably all the time and arguably be perhaps one of the happiest chief justices we've ever had on the bench. The bottom line is Taft was a lawman. He was gifted in jurisprudence. Politics in the White House, he just wasn't a good fit for. But nevertheless, with the election in November of 1908, Teddy Roosevelt would be succeeded by William Taft. So what I'd like to do is, and if you want to take notes on this, it's important, is I'm going to go through all of the major accomplishments under the presidency of, of, of Taft for his four years in office. Ready? Here we go. Okay, so now we're to the election of 1912, and Taft is considering whether to run again. Of course, it is in a bit of an extreme to say that Taft did nothing in office. But for the purposes of our podcast, highlighting the important aspects of the American presidents at various points in history, by and large, Taft was out of his element. Teddy Roosevelt, to make matters worse, he is now a former president, but he didn't stay silent about his criticisms of President Taft. He didn't, see, he didn't keep quiet when the press asked Teddy Roosevelt, what would you have done if you were still president? To the point that Teddy Roosevelt actually throws his hat in the ring for the Republican nomination for president in mid-1912. Taft is beside himself that not only has Roosevelt, his predecessor, been bashing him in public, but that he actually had the audacity to pull the rug out from under him by trying to unseat him, a man within his own party. Taft, however, felt for the good of the party that he had to run for a second term, while publicly thanking the fact that a precedent had been set that no president shall run for a third term. But he truly, Taft, is truly doing this more or less out of a sense of obligation. He truly, his heart wasn't in it. What's worse is therefore is that reflected in the campaign. William Taft's, President Taft's campaign by and large was lackluster, whereas Teddy Roosevelt was pounding the pulpit as he was known to do. And when the Republicans stayed true to the sitting president, William H. Taft, he then turned around, he, Teddy Roosevelt, and went out of desperation himself and formed an independent third party called the Bull Moose Party. All that did was tear the Republican Party and, by extension, the voting electorate in half. Half of the votes that went to Teddy Roosevelt would normally have gone to Taft. That's the reason why our 28th president of the United States, Woodrow Wilson, basically was able to waltz into office within the wake of a significantly split Republican Party. We will see this happen again in the election of 1992, when George H.W. Bush will have his party ticket torn by Ross Perot, 
allowing Bill Clinton to waltz in, and it will happen once again in the election of 2000 when Ralph Nader threw his hat in the ring against Al Gore. Now, most people had rolled their eyes saying, come on, Al Gore, vice president of the United States. Nader was, by and large, a, a name from a bygone era. Nevertheless, Nader pulled roughly 2% of the popular vote. And again, one might roll their eyes saying, yeah, that's nothing like Ross Perot, who pulled 19% of the electoral vote, admittedly, a very large number. But Gore won the popular vote to Bush, but lost the electoral math. Had Nader not thrown his hat in the ring, most Nader voters would have gone back to Gore. Because that election was so unbelievably close, it is thought that Ralph Nader's staying out of the election might have allowed Al Gore to step in as America's 43rd president of the United States. So with that, Woodrow Wilson, because of that split in the Republican Party, he comes in with the election of 1912 and takes the oath of office on March 4th, of 1913. It truly was a Democratic victory. Wilson, to date, our only president of the United States to hold a terminal degree, that being a doctorate, a PhD. He returned to delivering the State of the Union address in person. That was a tradition that was broken by President Jefferson, Presidents George Washington and John Adams, number two, set the example of the precedent that the State of the Union an address that is required by the Constitution of the United States of the President to deliver an update or an address on the progress of the nation to Congress, the Founding Fathers didn't state how that was to be done. So George Washington and John Adams, following him, just took it upon themselves to make the address in person, verbalizing their goals, the reviews on the past year, and to also a certain extent, which isn't done anymore, even taking questions from Congress. Thomas Jefferson, however, was so reluctant, I don't want to use the word scared, but definitely extremely uneasy about addressing people in public. He just was not a public speaker. As gifted as he was as a writer and a thinker, that was robbed of his ability to be speak confidently in front of a group of people. Jefferson abhorred that idea of addressing Congress in person. Therefore, he wrote his address out in longhand, sending it down to Congress via courier for somebody in Congress to read that address to both chambers of Congress. That would be the tradition that stayed until Woodrow Wilson broke with that, went back to the Washington Adams model of delivering the State of the Union address in person. We will talk about these uh, significant State of the Union addresses as our podcasts continue, because future presidents will also do many firsts, of which later presidents, of course, will take advantage of. So with this too, Woodrow Wilson comes in, however, to a very different evolving world. In the United States, progressivism was taking hold. There was division between corporate America and the working middle class America. He had his issues here to be concerned about. However, overseas, Wilson could not ignore the turbulence and turmoil that was happening on the European continent with balkanization leading to conflict in southeastern Europe. From there, he also was concerned of the skyrocketing research and development in military hardware. And he wondered to himself just how bad 
a war might be in the 20th century if it were to ever break out in the likes of the recent Spanish-American War or the far deadlier American Civil War. Sadly, unbeknownst to him as he took his oath of office in 1913, did he have any idea that he would be the sitting president, the first president in American history, to witness a colossal conflict that would consume more lives on a daily basis than in any other conflict in world history. That, of course, known as World War I. However, at this time, as the war begins, which we will address in the next podcast, a few, couple of podcasts from now, when Wilson sees this, he is the first president of the United States that realizes that perhaps to mitigate the bloodshed, he would have to commit American soldiers to a foreign war. So in this last part of the podcast, what I'd like to address is that at the same time in American history, we also enter an era of this dangerous and wrong notion that humankind was becoming indestructible, that we could fight the forces of Mother Nature and win, that we could create through industrialization and the advancements of the Industrial Revolution, that we could create objects that truly would be indestructible to the forces of Mother Nature. And that, of course, was exemplified in the actual object of the one of the largest cruise liners to sail the open high seas of the RMS Titanic. Titanic, the massive luxury liner, state-of-the-art vessel, produced and built by White Star Cruise Liners, was the ship that was exemplifying this thought of human indestructibility. The reason being is that the RMS Titanic, and just to clarify here, the RMS in front of it simply means Royal Mail Service. So Royal and then Mail, M-A-I-L, service, which many ships coming from England, that was their primary responsibility was the movement of mail and packages, of which the Titanic was also going to do. But it was advertised as being a state-of-the-art luxury liner. The reason for the thought that the RMS Titanic was in unsinkable or indestructible was that she was the first luxury passenger liner to have a double hull. So the initial hull that held the contents of every ship on the open waters, both military cargo and passenger, this ship would have a complete hull, and then inside another one would be built slightly smaller, of course, to fit inside the outer shell. The presence of those two shells or hulls is what made the engineers and White Star Cruise Line Company to conclude and advertise that it was humankind's first unsinkable ship. And therein lies perhaps when Mother Nature gave White Star Cruise Line that devious smile, thinking to herself, Wait until I get my hands on her. So the White Star Cruise Line sends out the Titanic on her maiden voyage, as we know, 
in April of 1912. Now, not to give away the end of the story that this ship's not quite going to have the best voyage that certainly anybody was intending. We know clearly she's not going to make her first and any destination. Rather, her first and only destination is going to be the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. But just a little bit of backdrop here as to what was going on that put the Titanic in very dangerous waters. The winter of 1911 to 1912, as uh, meteorology records indicate, was far warmer than normal throughout the Northern Hemisphere between Western Europe and Canada and the United States. It was a warmer winter, which meant that the spring arrived even earlier. And the early spring warmth, coupled with warmer North Atlantic waters, led to a massive amount or more than normal of ice calving. Ice calving. And ice calving, as its name implies, is of course when these icebergs lose some of their outer appendages or weaker parts that are on the edges of these massive icebergs. They break off. It's a beautiful, majestic scene to watch. Glaciers and icebergs lose part of their mass to the waters below, depending upon their density, whether they sink right away or they uh, break off and form their own smaller iceberg. It is something else to see the massive waves that are caused by these ice uh, sheets and chunks that fall off into the ocean is truly a sight that one never forgets when they witness it truly firsthand. So the Titanic was sailing through these waters. What is not as commonly known back then as it is today is icebergs are constantly in a state of motion or as well as change. Ice Icebergs do not, any more than glaciers, do not sit still. They are constantly on the move. They're moving with the currents of the water, currents of the wind, depending upon which is stronger, directing them in the direction that they happen to be going with, of course, no way to control that. They are at the mercy of Mother Nature's water currents and wind speed and wind currents. As a result, as these icebergs move into warmer water, they're also in a constant state of dissolving. What happens, therefore, is as the bottom of the iceberg, which of course is constantly in liquid water, warmer, of course, than the iceberg itself, is the bottom of the icebergs are constantly deteriorating and usually are deteriorating at a faster rate than the top of the iceberg. So what happens is as an iceberg breaks off, there, as we use the phrase, oh, that's only the tip of the iceberg. Well, the tip of that phrase indicates that the top of the iceberg is significantly smaller than the bottom. Yes, that is true every time when an iceberg begins to break off and go on its own. But as time goes on, the bottom of the iceberg continues to disintegrate and melt. Eventually, what happens is that the top of the iceberg becomes heavier than the bottom. And it starts getting extremely unstable and top-heavy, either with the addition of accumulating snow from a winter storm on the open waters and or high winds. The top of the iceberg eventually gets too heavy and too unstable to its base and flips over.
Now that iceberg, and if I asked you at the top of your head, what's the color of an iceberg? Right away, most people would say white, you know, pure white. Yeah, from clean snow that's falling on top. Well, now that clean op- that snow that was exposed to the environment in the atmosphere, that is now in the water. What comes up on top is the same iceberg, but the bottom of it. And that until there's it's a, it's surfaced for enough time until snow can start to form on it until the wind pushes it into an area where eventually it starts accumulating uh, more ice for the frosty look accumulating snow before it can turn white initially it's clear and i think you know where i'm going with this and that was the problem that captain smith of the titanic was up against These icebergs that flip over into the water are momentarily referred to as blackbergs or clearbergs, as as I have also heard them referred to, because initially, once they flip over, they're very difficult to see even during the day without the reflection of sunlight. At night, these blackbirds, as they're called now, because all they're doing is reflecting darkness, are truly deadly because oftentimes they are not visible until, as we know, it's too late. Captain Smith of the Titanic was warned to slow down his speed and head in a west-southwesterly direction. What that would have done is made the Titanic potentially late for its arrival in the harbors of New York City. The sad part of it is that by the time Captain Smith is receiving these warnings, the boilers are already moving at top speed, and the massive screws, all three of them, are spinning also at top speed. He actually was ahead of schedule. But the thought of not just heading directly west, but now heading west-southwest, in other words, somewhere between 180 and 270 degrees, that he didn't want to entertain. He thought it was unnecessary. So he continued full speed ahead, largely in a directly west trajectory. That then begs the question, if they're moving at top speed, why didn't the lookout in the crow's nest see the iceberg until it was too late? Well, as I mentioned before, because most likely the Titanic didn't actually hit what we would refer to by definition as an iceberg at all. Rather, they hit a blackberg, meaning that as that ship was arriving right at the point where it's becoming too late to be able to steer out of the way, it wouldn't be until that blackbird was almost right next to them would be the first opportunity that the lookout in the crow's nest could have sounded the alarm bells if he even had the opportunity. Because of this, the Titanic didn't simply ram the iceberg or the ice mass. Rather, what it did is it grazed it. Had the Titanic rammed the Blackberg head-on, sure there would have been significant damage to the front of the, sh- the, the ship itself, to the front of the hull, the bow, but it might have been able to withstand that. Ran- again, because of that double hull. 
Rather, the Titanic, the orders were to slow down and steer full left, a full left turn. And that, in retrospect, was the perfect recipe to allow the ocean liner to slice a broad cut into her starboard starboard side. So by ordering the ship to slow down and steer full port, meaning left, it allowed the iceberg to continually rip apart the starboard side of that massive, beautiful cruise liner. Had the order been full speed and port, that would have made for a tighter radius turn. They might have been able to miss a significant amount of that ice mass to possibly live and tell about it. As we know, and I'm not going to get into it here, especially with all the far more fiction that's created with the uh, the ice, the Titanic itself with the movie. And don't worry that I'm going to quote any lines for the movie or talk about it in any way. The most recent movie or my recent meaning, I believe was in the late 1990s. I never saw the movie Titanic. So you don't have to worry about me going on about it. But the fact of the matter is that when the ship rammed it, the double hull was penetrated with far more of her compartments than she was designed to be able to withstand. The water began to start plunging in, plowing in, flooding, and of course, eventually bringing the entire ship down. Because despite the warnings and the SOSs that were sent and people that were rescued, Regardless, the ship, as we know, would not be discovered for another several decades. It wouldn't be until the mid-1980s that sonar would pick up not the ship itself, but two parts to what must have been a massive ship. Despite what survivors said that the ship broke in half, Many that later read about it and studied it thought there was no way that massive ship could snap in half. It would have gone down as a whole. And that's what they were looking for for so many decades after its sinking in 1912. As we know, the ship not only split in half, but are actually thousands of feet apart from one another, resting on the ocean floor of the North Atlantic. I have and I bring into class a piece of coal that has its certificate of authenticity from the Titanic that has its certificate with it. And I often look at that piece of coal from the Titanic and I wonder if you could talk, what would you share about that fateful night? Thanks very much for listening. If you like what we discussed today, please go on my website and leave me a review. Other than that, have a great week. Thank you.